0: On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the just-released 2021 CMS payment rule for ASCs and HOPDs, review some recently-released guidance related to the Paycheck Protection Program, and in our focus segment, discuss electronic medical records with Darren Smith from Surgical Information Systems. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems. SIS provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. For more information, visit sisfirst.com. Welcome to episode 111 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for August 5th, 2020, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, Chief Operating Officer and owner of AHS, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry.
1: So we're having all kinds of challenges with our microphones and our board and our headphones today. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, um, hopefully everybody can hear this, right? Like we hear this hum.
0: Yeah, and, and our. The sound keeps cutting out in our headphones, but I yeah. think it's coming across okay.
1: Yes, yeah, because of that $1. twenty-five device over there, I think that's causing the problem, the <laughs> splitter of all things, the, the cheapest thing. Well, maybe thing. if it
0: would just spend $2 on the thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how cheap I am. <laughs> so today's August 5th. Uh, something going on today. What is it?
0: Hmm. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, for those of you in the world that don't know this, this is my 60th birthday.
0: So, <laughs> For those of you in the world that don't know
1: this. <laughs> Which is most of it's the world. It's big news. Why they
0: didn't broadcast it, I don't
1: know. I don't but know. <laughs> <laughs> Sue 60th treated me to birth. all kinds of uh, wonderful keto... <laughs> Uh, uh, desserts instead yeah, of a I big didn't cake.
0: bake them, but <laughs> we have a good keto bakery around near us, and so i was just thinking like though it is nice it.
1: that even you know being on a low carb diet like uh, mm-hmm. keto, that uh, you can still find something that's really very good tasting. I yep. I still would like to have my you know carrot cake though my yes. favorite thing in the whole world. Nobody's <laughs> know. been able to come up with a really good carrot cake recipe. No, for I haven't keto. seen
0: that out there. But <laughs> my daughter also. And baked some chocolate cupcakes, right. keto chocolate cupcakes cakes last night, so Kind of an early birthday cupcake.
1: I am a very well treated here, and of course, the puppy is uh, is also helping uh, me to celebrate my birthday. So, I, why I chose to record an episode on my birthday, I'm not quite sure. But
0: just so you could announce to the world that I was that it was that you're 60 years old.
1: <laughs> Don't know if that's something I really want the whole world to know. Well, we're trying to get back to our interviews finally. Uh, trying mm-hmm. to get back to some semblance of, of a normal uh, life here, and uh, so we did have an opportunity to uh, have a discussion with my friend Darren Smith over at uh, Surgical Information Systems. So we have a nice episode here where we're going to talk about electronic medical records, which is a topic we don't talk about that, that often, and mm-hmm. uh, certainly a lot of things going on, and thought he would update us on that. And, Sue, I was just thinking, we're planning um, a virtual conference for uh, New York State right now, actually, Mm -hmm. having into the the plans for it. And I know that last episode we mentioned that we haven't found any other conferences. We're not getting any emails from people about this. So, please, I know we're going to ask it in our third segment, Mm -hmm. but if you have any information about uh, upcoming conferences, either live or uh, Mm -hmm. recorded, please uh, let us know because that would really – Uh, help us to keep everybody up to date. Mm -hmm. I I think, though, the problem is people are just really up in the air. I know even with ASCA right now, we're trying to figure out what to do with the Winter Conference.
0: You know, a lot of times... We stick with local conferences because that's kind of what we see around here and, yeah. and because we do have a lot of New York listeners, but we have listeners all over the place. And the good thing about virtual conferences, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a far away state, we can broadcast it for you. That's we right. can let people know and they could, you know, sign in for the virtual things.
1: And, and of course, go into our podcastcom I uh-huh. guess this is a little shameless plug. Uh, there are some of the, the conferences that we recorded uh-huh. during the uh, pandemic, so... Uh, uh, not that we're done with the pandemic, but during the, the lockdown phase. Yeah. So uh, definitely visit there if you need some additional knowledge or AEU credits. Definitely look up there. So, Sue, we got some interesting news, just three things, but they're all big items. Uh, so, Sue, I know you saw an article in uh, Becker's uh, regarding a conversation with uh, Deborah Burks. talk a little uh-huh. bit about that?
0: Deborah Birx uh, told CNN in an interview that um, the U.S. has entered a new phase of the pandemic in which outbreaks are more widespread than they were in the spring. So outbreaks across the U.S. are no longer as concentrated in large cities and have spread to rural regions nationwide, according to Dr. Birx. And she was saying it is extraordinarily widespread, adding that Americans who live in rural areas are not immune or protected from this virus. And um, she was urging individuals who are living in mixed generational households to consider wearing a mask at home when their community is experiencing an, an outbreak. And I think that that is really important because it kind of started off one way and people felt pretty safe if they were more remotely located. And now it's really just kind of yeah. infiltrated everywhere and you just have to really pay attention to what your local area is going through and when to be especially careful.
1: Yeah. So does this mean you and I have to wear masks in the house uh, now that I'm 60 years old and uh, <laughs> way older than
0: you? Yes, so much older than me.
1: <laughs> oh, well, I and mean, we do have a mixed uh, age here, though. Uh, but mm-hmm. so I mean, I I think this is just an ongoing problem that we're going to have. I know I've mm-hmm. been able to see my mother for you know months, obviously mm-hmm. because of the fact that I travel so much. And yeah,
0: and I did go see her, my mom today. But it is so tricky. We had breakfast together, so I made sure I sat across the table, and I was able to take off my mask, but I wore it when I was close to her. I mean, it's yeah. just getting to be so tricky. You have to balance it, you know, because I I did want to see her, and then I see my grandkids as well sometimes, and... You know they're not so great about wearing masks, so I think yeah. we we just keep it very small. We don't have right. a lot of people that we interact with other than when we're traveling, and then we're always wearing masks right. and doing the hand washing and being very careful, yeah, but we'll have to watch you know if it if it starts coming more into the smaller towns,
1: well, especially since we live in a rural part of New mm-hmm. York, even mm-hmm. though we visit the city quite a bit yeah. and uh but yeah you know, i I was hoping by now we might see a, a downturn, but that certainly is not happening. No. And, and I noticed also, Becker's noted that the the test results, uh, it's just not feasible to get those test results on mm-hmm. an ongoing basis in two yeah. to three days, which we are finding. As a matter of fact, I think they mentioned in that article, 75% of tests are coming back within five days. Mm-hmm. In New York, you have to test any patients that are coming in for surgery, and uh, those results have to be within the last five days. So we're fine. I think that 75% number is mm-hmm. pretty accurate.
0: I think it's really tough, especially now that it's so many people are being tested
1: And then the most disappointing uh, part of the article was, while great progress has been made to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, there is no silver bullet and might never be, the head of the World Health Organization said, according to the New York Times, we all hope to have a number of effective vaccines that can help prevent people from infection said the uh, WHO director on August 3rd. So for now, stopping outbreaks comes down to the basics of public health and disease control, testing, isolating, and treating patients, and uh, tracing and quarantining their their contacts, do it all.
0: And and we do think, backers, we get lots of good information from them.
1: Thank you. That's uh, BeckersASC.com um, if you uh, want to go and check out their articles. So the uh, as we talked about last week, well, last week we mentioned that the, uh, the 2021 payment rule had not been released. It was released this week. Full disclosure here, I have not read the whole thing. I've only been reading summaries of it. So uh, we will have a, uh, an episode where we'll talk specifically about it. But here are some overviews of the 2021 payment rule, and I'll put some links on the website to this.
0: According to CMS, the Outpatient Prospective Payment System, or OPPS, and Ambulatory Surgical Center, or ASC, proposed rule advances CMS's commitment to increasing competition. CMS is proposing several policies that would give Medicare beneficiaries more choices in where they seek care and lower their out-of-pocket costs for surgeries.
1: So so this is a really good development. I think we're finding CMS is really uh, looking to... uh, uh, to the competitive environment here mm-hmm. to try to encourage consumers to uh, to look for lower cost alternatives. So the proposed rule takes steps that would allow hospitals and ambulatory surgical centers to operate with better flexibility and patients to have what they need to make informed decisions on where to receive care. Uh, they pointed out that President Trump's mandate is to put patients and doctors back in charge of health care, which I think we all agree is something that needs to be done, speaking for our, our ASCs and our physicians. Following through on that mandate entails loosening the stranglehold of government control that has accumulated over decades. Surgeries can be expensive. Patients should have as many options as possible for lowering their costs while getting uh, quality care. These proposed changes, CMS says, if finalized, would do exactly that. Help put patients and doctors back in the driver's seat and in a position to make decisions about their own care.
0: And CMS goes on to say, for patients having surgery Hospital outpatient departments are subject to the same quality and safety standards as inpatient settings under Medicare rules. With this in mind, for 2021, CMS proposes to expand the number of procedures that Medicare would pay for in the hospital outpatient setting by eliminating the inpatient only list which includes procedures for which Medicare will only make payment when performed in the hospital inpatient setting. This proposed change would remove regulatory barriers to give beneficiaries the choice to receive these services in a lower-cost setting and the convenience to go home as early as the same day after procedure when their clinician decides such a setting is appropriate.
1: So this is uh, very exciting. I think that mm-hmm. inpatient only list has been a thorn in our side for for years mm-hmm. because as technology has changed and as, as it's uh, become apparent that people don't have to have these extended stays or in mm-hmm. fact, in many cases, I, I I still actually remember the days when, this is really dating me now, when patients uh, stayed in-house after cataract surgery, sometimes for you know many days. And of course, that changed many, many years ago. So getting rid of the inpatient only list and really looking at procedures on a case-by-case basis to determine whether it's appropriate in an inpatient setting or an outpatient setting is really a big move forward.
0: But that's not opening it up necessarily for ASCs.
1: That's correct. So this is step one. So that, mm-hmm. that allows it to be moving uh, to an outpatient setting. Mm-hmm. And then the next step after that, obviously, is to uh, encourage the, I mean, if it's going to be in the hospital outpatient yeah. setting, then there really is no reason why it can't be on the uh, the ASC side. So yes, I think it's like a are really, one step at a time.
0: Yeah, a huge step, though, in the right direction.
1: And, and certainly in the attitude that CMS has toward uh, the industry and toward encouraging outpatient stays now. Uh, so CMS would phase in this proposal over three years and would gradually allow over 1,700 additional services to be paid when furnished in a hospital outpatient setting. So again, that's that first step. And uh-huh. then the step after, as they talk about, they go on. We're not going to read this whole thing, but, but certainly that's the first step in moving those things into, uh, into the ASC setting also. And they went on to say that in 2021, approximately 300 musculoskeletal services such as Uh, certain joint replacement procedures would be newly payable in the hospital outpatient setting. Again, this is exactly where the industry is heading. This is what's happening with many insurance cases, indeed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the proposed change would be the largest one-time reduction in the inpatient-only list uh, by far. From 2017 to 2020, approximately 30 services total were removed from Hmm. the inpatient-only list. So so literally 10 times as many that are going in that that direction.
0: And as we all know, Medicare pays for most services furnished in ASCs at a lower rate than hospital outpatient departments. And as a result, when receiving care in an ASC rather than a hospital outpatient department, patients can potentially lower their out-of-pocket costs for certain services.
1: They run on to to give an example Mm -hmm. that for one of the most common cataract uh, surgeries currently, Mm -hmm. on average, Medicare beneficiary pays $101 that the procedure is done in a hospital outpatient department compared to $51 if done in the surgery center. (laughs) And again, we know all these things, and it's nice to see this published uh, here, and hopefully this information will get out to the public.
0: CMS also proposes to expand the number of procedures that Medicare would pay for when performed in an ASC, which would give patients more choices in where they receive care and ensure CMS does not favor one type of care setting over another.
1: Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> we would like them to uh, to, to favor ASCs, mm-hmm. but it's all right. This is a step yeah. in the right direction.
0: There are other reasons to go for an ASC. <laughs> that's right. Lots of good reasons. So CMS says for calendar year 2021, we propose to add 11 procedures that Medicare would pay for when provided in ASC, including total hip arthroplasty.
1: Oh, what a huge change that is mm-hmm. to, to do uh, you know total hips now in an ASC setting. Uh, you know, my mother had this procedure done many many years ago, and to imagine that we can do that in an ASC now, and I've actually uh, witnessed this procedure being done in an ASC. It's absolutely incredible. So so it's great to see that that Medicare is finally going to allow that. CMS also noted that since 2018, t- CMS has added 28 procedures to the list of surgical procedures that can be paid under Medicare when performed in ASCs. I'd like to see that number to be more, and mm-hmm. hopefully with this uh, the changes that they've talked about in this uh, uh, proposed ruling that uh, we're going to see an escalation in the number of cases that are being moved over. Yeah. So I think what was also exciting in, this, uh, in the proposal is that under the new proposed rule, there were going to be two alternatives to proposing these procedures being moved into the ASC setting. Under the first altern- CMS would establish a process where the public could nominate additional services that Mm -hmm. could be performed in ASCs based on certain quality and safety parameters. Uh, And then under uh, the other proposed alternative, uh, CMS would revise the criteria used to determine the procedures that Medicare would pay for in an ASC, potentially adding 270 procedures that are already payable when performed in a HOPD. Under this alternative, they're going to solicit comment on whether the ASC conditions for coverage, in other words, the baseline health and safety requirements for Medicare uh, ASCs, would be revised given the potential for significant expansion in the nature of services. So, what they're saying is they're going to take a very broad approach to this, looking at um, the, the types of procedures that can be performed and determining whether they need to adjust the conditions for coverage to do that. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think this is a, a very positive step in the right direction. You know, I, I don't think we want more regulations, but if those, if they are proposed, proposing regulations to improve the safety Mm -hmm. and the efficacy of moving these cases over to the ASC setting, and it'll be benefiting uh, everybody. So in the the new payment rule, CMS is proposing to add 11 codes to the ASC CPL list in 2021. Um, I'm not going to mention them all here, but uh, we will put them in the uh, the show notes here. Uh, But those include, as they talked about, the total hip arthroplasty a variety of implant procedures, and, uh, you know, some laparoscopies, as well as some additional lithotripsy uh, cases. So, uh, again, very exciting developments. And I think this is good news, no new measures proposed for the ASC quality reporting program. So, CMS is not proposing to remove any existing measures or to adopt any new measures for 2023 payment huh. determination. So,
0: yeah, we have to keep things a little more simple. It has been a rough yes. <laughs> <year> so
1: far. <laughs> Absolutely glad
0: they're not changing anything. I'm glad there. that
1: that's uh, and, and overall Fun this thing. is a, a pretty. I mean, from from the standpoint of uh, somebody like myself, this is a pretty boring update. I mean, exciting in the sense that they uh, they're they're indicating that they're moving in the mm-hmm. in a direction I think they should be going. But uh, thankfully, not a lot of major changes. Not a larger a lot of uh, uh, major reimbursement issues that uh, that are going to happen in this upcoming year. We did get some updates on the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP. Uh, So uh, there was some guidance that was issued. Um, So the SBA, in consultation with the Department of Treasury, is providing this guidance to address borrower and lender questions concerning the forgiveness of the uh, PPP loans as provided uh, in the Corona uh, Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, better known as CARES. So uh, I just want to go through a couple of these that I think are important.
0: So, there are a number of questions here, and they're uh, frequently asked questions. So, I'll, I'll go ahead with one. If a borrower submits a timely loan forgiveness application, does the borrower have to make any payments on its loan prior to SBA remitting the forgiveness amount, if any?
1: Yeah, so this is a really good question, I think, uh, as part of the fact. And, and the reason that it's a good question is because uh, we all know everything runs slowly and, mm-hmm. and getting SBA approval uh, for the forgiveness might take a while in the best of circumstances. I mean, I, I think there's just going to be so many applications going out there and so much that, that needs to be done. So mm-hmm. I think this is a good question. And yeah. and their response was, as long as the borrower submits its loan forgiveness application within 10 months of the completion of the covered period as defined in the uh, the regulations the borrower is not going to be required to make any payments until the forgiveness amount is remitted to the lender by SBA. If the loan is fully forgiven, the borrower is not responsible for any payments. If only a portion of the loan is forgiven, or if the forgiveness application is denied, any remaining balance due on the loan must be repaid by the borrower, honor before the maturity date of the loan. Interest accrues during the time between the disbursement of the loan and the SBA remittance of the forgiveness amount. And the borrower is responsible for paying the accrued interest on any amount of the loan that is not forgiven. So this is a a good development, basically indicating there's a lot of flexibility here and uh, hopefully people will uh, um, see, well first of all, hopefully people will get their applications in on a timely basis and we still have some time for that. Um, But uh, uh, keeping on top of this, uh, I, I don't think will be too difficult as long as we uh, respond quickly.
0: And another question, are payroll costs that were incurred during the covered period one or the alternative payroll covered period two, but paid after the covered period or the alternative payroll covered period eligible for loan forgiveness. I feel like that's a tongue twister. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, <laughs> I, sorry I made you question. ask the question.
1: Let's... So what we, we know under the PPP program is that there were two alternatives. Uh, one was that you had an eight-week period and then there was an additional period of time depending upon whether you're able to use all that funding. And that was a great opportunity for people to extend uh, the length of time. So the second alternative was a 24-week covered period. So if you opted for uh, depending upon which one you opted for will determine, uh, you know, the coverage period. So their answer was quite simply: if uh, yes, if the payroll costs are paid on or before the next regular payroll after the covered period or alternative payroll period, um, th- then they will be eligible for loan forgiveness. So uh, again, it's showing again some uh, flexibility or quite a bit of flexibility in in this. And they also went on to state that uh, payroll costs that were incurred before the covered period, but paid during the covered period, would also be eligible for loan forgiveness. Um, and I know that in our particular case, that, that was one of the issues we had is I think the, uh, the loan was actually dispersed midway through one of our payrolls. So, so this definitely will help us out.
0: And for purposes of calculating cash compensation, should borrowers use the gross amount before deductions for taxes, employee benefits payments, and similar payments, or the net amount paid to employees?
1: So, as an accountant, this question kind of bothers me because you know, we're always dealing with the gross numbers, So I'm not sure, uh, but but obviously these are questions that people asked of uh, the SBA and uh, and certainly had to be answered. So yes, indeed they uh, they did verify that the gross amount should be used uh, when calculating cash compensation, which is good for you because obviously the, insur- the, uh, the uh, amateur the the ambulatory surgery centers are paying uh, out of that gross amount for the you know various taxes and and uh, uh, you you wouldn't want only the net amount to be reimbursed. Mm-hmm. I, I thought another interesting question was, are only salaries or wages covered by loan forgiveness or can a borrower pay lost tips, lost commission bonuses or other forms of incentive pay and have such costs qualify for the loan forgiveness? Now, I, I don't think any of our surgery centers are getting tips, uh, but if you were giving uh, bonuses during this period, uh, especially bonuses that you would have normally given to your employees during that, I, I know we have a couple uh, uh, centers that uh, have regular bonuses based upon uh, you know performance, etc. So they did verify again that payroll and cla- costs include all forms of cash compensated paid by employees, including these uh, tips, commissions, uh, bonuses, and and hazard pay. Again, hazard pay is probably an important element here. I don't mm-hmm. know how many surgery centers are doing mm-hmm. that, uh, but it is. Uh, but remember that all of this forgivable cash compensating uh, compensation per employee is limited to one hundred thousand dollars on an annualized basis. So for your higher paid individuals, as long as on an annualized basis it doesn't go over one hundred thousand. You get, um, you're get, you going to be able to be forgiven for the amounts that go up to that $100,000.
0: And what expenses for group health care benefits will be considered payroll costs that are eligible for loan forgiveness? So again, the, the
1: guidance provided that uh, employer expenses for employee health Uh, group healthcare benefits that are paid or incurred by the borrower during the covered period or the alternative payroll covered period are payroll costs eligible for loan forgiveness. However, payroll costs do not include expenses for group healthcare benefits paid by employees. And again, that stands to reason. So they're only covering the employer portion of it. If it's taken out of the employee's pay, um, it wouldn't be separately reimbursable. I did find there was an interesting question. Uh, So there are uh, certain non-payroll costs that were also covered. And there was a question is interest on unsecured credit eligible for loan forgiveness? And the answer was no. So payments of interest on business mortgages or real estate uh, are eligible for the loan forgiveness. But if it's an unsecured debt, such as perhaps a line of credit that's not secured by some of the assets of the organization, that's not going to be a forgivable amount. Uh, so that might be a little bit of a problem for those uh, those non-payroll portions. So uh, this is very granular information. I know uh, Sue, mm-hmm. your head just bowed down and your already fell asleep on me uh, here, but I think it is an important question. And, um, you know, keep an eye out. My recommendation here is that this is a good thing to to bring to the attention and to work with your accountant on because uh, it is confusing. I am a CPA and Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, I mean, this is very complex, almost as complex as the IRS uh, regulations mm-hmm. for taxes, so I think uh, you're really going to need some help here, and especially given the amount of money that's involved here and the potential yeah. for having it written off, uh, definitely consult with your friendly local uh-huh. uh, accountant uh, to help them through this. Uh, not this accountant, not myself, because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly not the not expert either. on it. But uh, mm-hmm. I know the uh, I, I still get a lot of information from the mm-hmm. ASCPA, our uh, organization, you know, that oversees uh-huh. uh, accounting rules in the United States, and and they are really working very hard to uh, give guidance to their uh, that you know to their members so uh, definitely uh, consult with them.
0: Now one simple rule If you've been listening to the news, is don't go out and buy a Lamborghini with the money that you claimed was (laughs) for your PPP PPP. because you will get in trouble.
1: And that's probably not going to be forgivable, (laughs) I I would assume. I certainly hope not.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, let's
1: uh, take a break, and we'll come back. And during our focus segment, we're going to talk about electronic medical record systems. And, Sue, you, unfortunately, uh, I recorded this earlier, so you were not uh, uh, part of that recording. When you and I attend conferences, lawyers are often – not uh, very happy with EMR systems. So uh, we do talk about that a little Uh bit and uh, luckily Darren has a bit of an answer. So uh, let's uh, take a break, we'll come back and we'll talk about EMR systems.
2: If your center is like most ASCs, you have seen significant changes in the past several years patient financial responsibility is on the rise, while patient experience has taken on greater importance. With margins tightening, physician owners expect their center to run efficiently and on schedule. Competition for qualified staff has left you with a never-ending cycle of onboarding and training. To meet these challenges and more, many ASCs have turned to technology, but too often implementing technology leads to a poorly connected patchwork of systems from separate vendors that can reduce performance. Surgical Information Systems has a better way. It's SysComplete. SysComplete is a comprehensive cloud-based technology solution designed for all ASC stakeholders. With SysComplete, administrators and staff use worklists to fly through their scheduling, billing, and revenue cycle management tasks. For physician office staff, SysComplete replaces time-consuming phone calls and faxes with an electronic connection to the ASC that enables them to request cases and share surgical documents. Nurses, physicians, and anesthesia providers say they love using SysComplete for electronic clinical documentation because it follows their workflow. And vitals are captured automatically, enabling providers to focus on the patient, not the documentation. Physicians can use a mobile application to access their EMR for schedule updates and to complete their documentation on any device. SysComplete also improves the patient experience. A surgical portal enables patients to complete electronic questionnaires and review instructions when and where it is convenient all the information put into the portal flows directly into the emr for review and on the day of surgery clinical and waiting area electronic tracking boards keep everyone informed of a patient's surgical progress beltline surgery's bill mcknight may have summed up CIS Complete best when he said with ciscomplete we get the data on the clinical side and then use it for our administrative purposes It truly does complete our processes and make everything we do more seamless. Learn how SysComplete can meet your needs today and fuel your growth tomorrow by calling Surgical Information Systems at 800-866-0656 or visit sisfirst.com.
1: So I'm here with uh, Darren Smith. He's the Director of ASC Solutions for Surgical Information Systems. In this role, Darren serves as a product and industry subject matter expert, frequently speaking in industry events and contributing to publications. Darren previously worked as Director of Clinical Services for an ASC and for a surgical hospital management and development company. Welcome, Darren. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here, and uh, we're talking about an exciting subject today, uh, EMRs, which uh, it's interesting to me, uh, Darren, EMRs really haven't penetrated the ASC market as much as uh, it certainly has in uh, the physician practices and certainly in the hospital arena. So, you know, I, I thought I'd just start out this interview by asking, why do you think that is?
3: Well, the, there was no precipitating event. When we talked about the, the offices and, and the hospitals themselves, they had that that directive that said, hey, you have to have an EMR. And uh, as per usual, the the surgery centers kind of got left behind and, and they got left out of all of those rules and rulemaking and policies. So everyone said, okay, we're just gonna wait and see what happens. So that we really didn't have that drive. Uh, and you know, surgery centers are not usually ones that are on the forefront of change either. They're, you know, most of these surgery centers are using uh, the management products that are 20 plus years old and that's what they've had this entire time and and new softwares have come and gone since then and they really haven't gained a foothold in that surgery center community so so they usually aren't the ones on the forefront of change and we really haven't had that precipitating event that that has driven them to adopt these new technologies and of course It's not helping when our reimbursements have consistently gone down over the years. So there really hasn't been a flush of money to be investing in new technology either.
1: Right, and and of course, Ambiturary surgery centers never had the benefit, of, you kind of alluded to this, never had the benefit of
3: uh, financial assistance in developing these, yeah. uh, uh, these programs. So now the focus came back to the, the companies that produce this software, that, that now we have to have a massive ROI, a return on that investment. So that takes a little bit of time to develop and, and uh, a little bit of time for us to find investors that are willing to take that leap uh, with us. To, to create something that has a return on investment so we can encourage people to go down that road. So, Darren, uh, one of the things that I've always uh, seen over the years
1: and working with EMR vendors is that they often try to sell their uh, their products by sending out uh, uh, white papers about how the EMR will save them money. In other words, <laughs> they do these complex calculations about how much money they're going to save by going with an EMR. And uh, I would argue <laughs> that that never happens, and that's not the reason to be buying an EMR. So I'm just kind of. Uh, curious your observations about, first of all, those vendors that try to sell their product that way and perhaps what you think in terms of how they should be marketing their uh, their product rather than from a cost mm-hmm. standpoint.
3: Well, I, in the earlier days of EMR, definitely agree with you. Uh, the amount of IT support and the amount of of equipment and, and uh, training and ongoing support that you needed made it difficult to have that return on investment. Uh, Luckily, over the last few years, uh, many of the EMR companies have been able to increase that value stack. Uh, and, And we talk about, you know, we used to take some pretty good leaps with that. We used to say, well, all your charts are going to be perfect, so that's going to reduce your liability and liabilities worth, what, 50000 a year? Well, that's kind of a stretch, and and, and we all did it. <laughs> but now we're able to create a better value stack because we can take this into a SaaS environment or software-as-a-service environment so that we can reduce that equipment spend. You don't have to have these massive services Servers on site anymore, and you don't have to have as much IT support because the, the companies that are offering this on, in a, a web environment are now handling all of that, that IT infrastructure and that IT spend. Um, so we've been able to increase that value stack with some other offerings as well. Um, we quite often see with the management products and the EMRs that people were adding things on to it. It. So they would bolt on a, a patient tracker or they would bolt on a communication system that sends texts out to, to patients and, and things like that. And when they started adding all those things in, they're, they're paying a much higher price to have a more modern system. So what many of the vendors have done is started adding things into that base price so that we can eliminate the need for all of that uh, all of those additional Contracts with outside companies and interfaces and and all those things. So luckily, we've been able to to increase that value stack over time. I think we're getting a little bit closer to a a good ROI, uh, a good return on that investment for surgery centers. Where we see some of those things fluctuate is, of course, at the size of the surgery center. So of course, the larger surgery centers, are seeing a, b- a much better ROI uh, than, than the smaller ones. Um, I know many of us vendors are making changes in the way that we provide those uh, softwares to make it easier and more affordable for the smaller centers too. So it's not a, a bad way to sell an EMR now. Uh, it was a bit of a stretch even two or three years ago. But uh, moving these things out to a web-based platform has really been able to, uh, reduce that capital spend, if you will, uh, and, and really reduce the amount of training that's necessary. So we are getting closer to a better ROI in that, in but that I, aspect.
1: But I think that the, my, my point is that I, I wouldn't be trying to sell EMRs on ROI at all. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that 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 actually is just not the point at all today. If we're going to sell or try to convince a surgery center that they need to implement an EMR, and I'll tell you from the standpoint of most of my my facilities now, uh, the cost is not – the selling point, in other words, saving money is not mm-hmm. the selling point. It's the, it, I mean, in my view, it's uh, you know the the uh, the benefits of going to an EMR, like getting better information, you know, maybe more consistency in the documentation. Uh, my favorite one, uh, fixing the legibility issue, of course, uh, and making sure that everything is complete. I, I don't even think that uh, frankly vendors and, and you know respectfully uh, disagree that that mm-hmm. selling this based upon a, on cost savings is the right way to go I think that we really have to focus on the other advantages and, and the fact that you know let's face it maybe this isn't the best reason to go with an EMR but this is the world way the world is going and and we know that this bullet train is coming at us and we better mm-hmm. better be prepared for it so I, I think rather than focusing on the finances uh, and and potentially saving money just kind of ignore that part of it and, uh, you know, focus on what are the, are going to be the other advantages, particularly in the quality improvements, you know, perspective. I mean, this podcast really focuses pretty heavily on quality right. improvements. So can you just talk a little bit about some of those advantages that, sure. that we see in modern EMR systems? So
3: one of the keys that we focus on and, and we see other vendors focusing on is the, the concept of better information and consistency and documentation. Uh, one of the, the nice parts about using an EMR, uh, especially the more modern EMRs, is all of the data that you're entering is discrete data. And when we talk about discrete data, that means that it's searchable. And that it's reportable. So, if we wanted to do a quality study in the past yeah. that had clinical aspects to it, that meant we were, you know, uh, taking that massive stack of sixty charts into a room, and I was paying three or four nurses to page through each one of those charts to pull data from it for my quality study. Um, if we're using a discrete data system, it's a matter of running a report. Right. So we now we can run that report and and have the data that we're looking for. So so we're not. Uh, Waste. I don't want to say wasting time because it's never a waste of time to do a quality study. But we're not using that time to do the data entry or the data uh, requisition. We're actually using the time to analyze the data and and use the data to to progress that that study. Um, we also talk a lot about the consistency of documentation and of course the legibility of of documentation and the consistency of that documentation is basically housed within the. EMR. So you can get uh, that discrete data option. Uh, so if you know if I have a blank on a paper form, I'm allowed to put anything I want in there. But if I'm using a dropdown, or if I'm using a radio button that only gives me a limited number of choices, then it, then I can create a more consistent message in my charts and create a more consistent way to search and, and report on that data. So so by reducing the amount of variables we can in turn increase the consistency of that documentation and make it a little easier for us to do those quality studies and to uh, uh, get the job done. Legibility has always been an issue. Uh, You've been in healthcare a long time. I've been in healthcare a long time. Uh, (laughs) I I can't tell you how many times I've I've tried to interpret uh, physician orders and things like that. So uh, that is one of the strong Returns we talk about not just return on investment but in a return on uh, value uh, is that legibility. Uh, We also talk a lot about accessibility, and uh, you know, in a paper world, the only way that I can get a chart reviewed, a chart signed is in a physical manner. I have to be mm-hmm. sitting right in front of that chart has to be sitting right in front of the physician or the provider. In an EHR environment, we now have the accessibility that that they don't have to be on site or I don't have to load up 16 charts in my car and drive them over to the physician's office just to get them signed. Now we give them that accessibility through the web or for through um, uh, their phones to be able to jump on there and Get those things signed when they're supposed to be signed. So now we're we're working better uh, towards the timing of those signatures. Uh, so we have our orders signed before the case starts. And we have that HP registered and signed and reviewed before the case starts. Uh, and having those things fall in the correct order according to the CMS, triple HC, and everybody else's guidelines.
1: You bring up an interesting point. Right now, uh, peer review is becoming, or well, it has been a big topic uh, recently for surveyors, but it's certainly becoming more and more of a topic recently. And uh, the, I, I'll tell you, getting getting chart reviews done, you know, by the by physician peers is always a challenge. So you bring up a very good point: is that accessibility and being able to do it in a HIPAA secure way is very important. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how? Uh, well-designed systems are going to provide that type of accessibility?
3: Mm -hmm. So when we talk about a a well-designed system for accessibility, we want to offer uh, many different ways to access the the chart itself. And we also want to be able to to control that access. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, Ideally, what would be ideal is I can package up seven or eight different charts, electronic charts, send a link to the the provider that needs to do that chart review, And no matter where they're sitting, if they're sitting in traffic, they can pull it up on their phone and and do that review. If they're at the office, if they're sitting at home, they have the opportunity to do that work when it's most convenient to them. Um, Also giving me that capability of contacting them in several different ways as well. So uh, having the ability to reach out to them anonymously, so to speak. So uh, my whole staff doesn't get their cell phone number. They just have a, uh, a portal they can go to to communicate with the physician that usually gives our physicians, um, they're a little afraid of, of handing their cell phone out to everybody because they're going to get that call on Saturday afternoon to okay. say, hey, my kid has an earache. Will you call in a prescription for me? Uh, now, if we can do that in an anonymous fashion, it, it gives them a, a, a little easier feeling about uh, communicating with the surgery center.
1: You bring up a very important point there, too, is that, uh, you know, uh, having a system designed in such a way that you don't have to provide access to every medical record, but only the access to those medical records that you want to have reviewed, need to know type thing is very important. And and again, what we're really kind of focusing on here is, you know, what types of things should people be looking for when they're looking uh, into uh, uh, an EMR system? So very good point on that. I kind of wanted to (laughs) put that... Counterpoint. So we talked about all the advantages of uh, going with an EMR <laughs> system, but uh, one of the things I, unfortunately, Sue is not with me uh, right now. Uh, one of her uh, pet peeves when she's uh, um, uh, looking at uh, chart reviews and a uh, little bit from the medical legal standpoint is that uh, during conferences over the years, lawyers have frequently uh, commented that they would much rather see a paper record than an electronic record, which is always a fascinating comment that I've heard. And the reason for that tends to be the uh, you know the issue. Of uh, like people get kind of sloppy, you know. They just accept the defaults mm-hmm. that are in the ch- the charts. though so, they're not going to spend as much time on the drop downs or the default answers, and and that's where they get into legal troubles with it. You know, failure to change the standardized language. So, what are your observations about that? And again, focusing mm-hmm. on what are good systems out there, and what should you be looking for when you're looking uh, at an EMR to assure that you're not going to run into the problems that these lawyers uh, are concerned about.
3: So. Probably what the lawyers didn't realize when they were making that comment is when we were on paper charts, we were doing all that stuff anyway. Um, I In my surgery centers, I could walk up to a shelf and pull out an, an op report or an OR record, and it was already two-thirds filled out based on the the defaults or, or the preferences of the surgeon. So, we were doing all that work that, that EHRs are doing now. It just wasn't as obvious as it is in an EHR. Um, so, so. Some of that has to do with the visibility of what, what they were able to see and what they, what they can't see. But, uh, but to ahead. the
1: lawyer's point, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. their, their history in defending these charts uh, mm-hmm. are, you know, that they have much more problems defending electronic charts because, as you said, mm-hmm. it's so much more obvious in there that they haven't mm-hmm. changed those things around.
3: So a good system is going to allow you to control that on site so you can make sure and adapt that system to the policies that you have and what do you think is a standard of practice or what your consulting uh, lawyers think is a standard of practice. For example, if I wanted to create in my system the ability to default uh, certain answers to the op note or, or to the operative record, I would want to make sure that uh, my staff or or we were not able to default um, patient assessments. So, right. I, I never want to default something that requires a patient assessment like an ASA classification or a wound classification. That needs to be entered each time based on your assessment. Safe surgery checklist items, uh, the timeout, Those things are are important enough that they should not be allowed to have those defaults or templates applied to them. And it's up to the surgery centers themselves to apply those policies to their charts. Now, a good EMR system is going to allow you to do that. Things like patient position and and uh, uh, where the safety strap is and cautery settings and things like that, uh, those were the things that are, are common and don't change a lot. Mm-hmm. But you can in our good in the good systems have the ability to flag those so they require you to at least acknowledge that. So this may be the default, but I'm still going to make you look at it and. Um, this may be what the physician is required to review and sign, but we're still going to make him look at it. We're not going to let him click one button and sign everything without viewing it. So a good system is going to take those things into account and make sure that they have the appropriate security and stoppages and, and ways to make sure that, that we're following those policies, uh, that ensure, um, rev- Quality review of the information and and not just uh, flying by those things, uh, which has always been their concern.
1: Well, and, and being, it just uh, seems to me like this is uh, this is one of those areas you probably better make sure that the doctors are not the ones that are making the ultimate decision about how Amen. that medical record <laughs> is going to be put together because they're going to say, "Just give me all defaults. All I have to do is click the button here, and and everything's there." So we we have to protect them from themselves <laughs> and.
3: Yeah. Yeah, we, we've lost uh, as many EMR d- deals as, as the next vendor because of that fact. Yeah. Uh, because we, you know, I, I'm not going to let you sign off on the h without viewing it on the screen, right, uh, even right. though that's what you want. Because that isn't good for us, and that's what's driving the lawyer's objections. Yeah,
1: agreed, agreed. Well, actually, that brings up another interesting point here is uh, I find frequently – we're, we're running into a lot of scenarios lately. You and I have actually talked about this a little bit, where um, uh, in, uh, new surgery centers are uh, building um, or, or buying systems that had not been designed specifically for ASCs, um, and I mean, we could do an entire you know interview based upon that whole discussion right there. And I think it's particularly acute when it comes to uh, EMRs because of the the unique documentation that we have to have. So what what I found is that many times when a a physician's practice builds a surgery center, they say, let me just use my office uh, documentation, EMR system in the surgery center. Of course, there are no built-in protections there. Can we just talk about that for a second, is that what is the difference between an office EMR system and a surgery center EMR system? Because they are very different and very different requirements yeah. with regard to the sinus, for example, the different sections in there, uh, the different type of documentation.
3: So, so from a, a macro level, if we look at this at, at an overall level, uh, the main difference between the, the uh, clinic systems and the ASC systems is the ASC system is very episodic. So I come in and have a surgery, you don't have to maintain that relationship and drawing things forward. Uh, you know, most of us are, are going to have one or two surgeries in our entire lifetime, whereas these clinic systems are designed for the long haul. So they have a very different flow and a very different uh, way in which they approach each individual appointment. Um, that's just kind of the on the macro level. On the micro level, if you start looking at what clinic systems were designed to do, was to maintain a patient's health and do diagnosis and things like that. Uh, the the surgery centers systems are there to we're there to fix stuff. So we want to have an episode of care that concentrates on not maintaining this patient's health, but fixing what's wrong with them. And it's a very different way of charting. You know, if we break it down even further, we start looking at things that are important on the reporting side for the clinic systems as compared to the ASC systems. Clinic systems don't care about inventory or case costing. Uh, on the surgery center side, it's extremely important to know whether I'm making any money, what cases I'm making money on, which cases I'm not. So we, we have yet to see a clinic system that uh, includes an inventory system and a high functioning inventory system uh, and a case costing module so that you have that capability. Uh, we have run into hundreds of clinic systems that don't even know what state reporting is. Yeah. So when you start talking about the, the data that I'm required to keep for my state reporting or federal reporting, you're not going to find that in a clinic EMR, as well as the mandatory logs. So when you are, are doing surgeries and, and you have to keep that radiology log uh, of exposure and you have to keep that implant log, most of the clinic systems aren't going to have that. So you're still going to have that giant three ring binder with all the stickers in it. And, and that kind of defeats the purpose of an EMR. Uh, if you're going to go EMR, shouldn't you be paperless yeah so those are the the main differences that we see from that macro level of it's just a different design of workflow and then down to the micro level of reporting and 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 workflow and things of that nature
1: i also find that a lot of those uh, clinic systems well actually most of those clinic systems don't don't uh, allow the proper uh, sign-offs after each section, mm-hmm. so like pre-op, uh, intraoperative, post-operative, you're not going to find the right sign-offs there, uh, nor does it accommodate appropriately the different types of providers. Uh, you know, the mm-hmm. nursing staff, for example, the sur- surgeons, the anesthesiologists, so a uh, very good point. And, uh, and uh, I'm fi- your point about state reporting is uh, particularly important for me <laughs> right now because uh, I, of course, live in New York. Uh, quite a number of our clients are in New York and, uh, as you well know, the New York State recording reporting requirements are probably the, the strictest in the country when it comes to post-operative um, discharge uh, information that has to be provided to the state. And, and none of the uh, clinic systems really can do it as well as a system that's been designed specifically for ASC. So just a note to everybody now, out there that's looking into a system, especially if you're in New York, make sure those systems have some way of reporting to the state. Otherwise, you're going to be spending a lot of money in order to, uh, to make up for that lack of uh, information.
3: We were talking to a client uh, in New York just the other day that, that was talking about state reporting and they, are, they were using a clinic system. Yeah. Uh, and she says every quarter, it takes her between 18 and 20 hours worth of work to yeah. gather that information for yeah. the report. And if you're using an EMR that is specific or, or a, a complete system that is specific to the ASC, you're basically putting in dates of service and clicking one button and it will produce that for yeah. you after that initial setup.
1: You might want a reminder that the requirement in New York now is monthly reporting. So, <laughs>
3: oh, yeah. Good luck with that. What do we have? Uh, Twenty-six states now that ought, that yeah. uh, require reporting, and right. uh, some of them are monthly, some of them are quarterly, some of them are annual. So, yeah. uh, it, it's it's not easy to keep track of all that either. So
1: we're recording this episode uh during uh I, we'll probably be saying this for the next couple of years during the COVID-19 <laughs> crisis. <laughs> and uh there's and uh we're we're recording this in uh, August. Um Of 2020. So uh, we're still in the middle of the crisis, but during uh, the pandemic, we faced a number of challenges with regard to uh, documentation, medical record documentation. And I know uh, from those that had paper records, they had to make a lot of changes to forms, had to add a lot of uh, forms throughout this process. So I guess that's another area that we need to make sure if you're looking into an EMR system, you're able to turn on a dime there and be able to add forms uh, very quickly, uh, and Mm -hmm. hopefully not without any additional expense talk a little bit about uh, uh, about what what we should be looking for in an EMR when it comes to the ability to change um, documentation—I uh, won't say on the fly, but at least mm-hmm. you know—make it easier for for those changes to occur.
3: Yeah, you want to make sure that that whatever system you're evaluating has the ability to provide you with a forms manager. Um, a, a forms manager is going to allow you to add questions, redesign your forms, and and redesign uh, in what order those fall within that. That perioperative visit, and and giving you the ability to do that on site, uh, so having the appropriate controls so someone can get in there and add that COVID antibodies question to to the questionnaire, uh, and I would also add that if you want to take that one step further, make sure that the the system that, that you're looking at gives you the opportunity to do that in a, a remote fashion. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. having the ability to bridge that gap between you and the patient remotely. So, having the ability to interact with the patient over a portal or interact with the patient via text or email can be very important as well, especially in, in, in these times. Yeah. Uh, getting that information without the patient standing in front of me has has uh, skyrocketed in right. in its importance.
1: Well, and, and that brings up another interesting point, is that as we're transitioning to this new world, uh, we're finding that our HMPs are going to be evolving also, and that we're probably going to be doing a lot more telehealth. Particularly, I, I can't do a physical very easily, though I think that will be changing too. Uh, but uh, definitely, the you know, gathering the history. And a lot of surgery centers over time have, you know, made preoperative phone calls, you know, to patients. But that would be between the nurse and the, and the patient. I think we're going to find changes with regard to the HMPs in general um, and how that uh, information is being gathered through telehealth and and a direct interaction between the physician and the patient uh, through
3: telehealth. Mm Mm-hmm. And and – whatever telehealth solution that you look at, make sure that that telehealth solution has the ability to drive information back into your EHR. Right. So you're not, you know, creating more work for yourself by, by uh, uh, now I have this report that I have to take all the data off of and put it into my EHR. Right.
1: As many of our clients start to uh, consider implementing EMRs, one of the issues that they run into is the time frame. In other words, how long is it going to take uh, to, first of all, uh, make the decision to implement an EMR, to choose an EMR, and then it implement an EMR. And I think it's important for us to kind of uh, set those expectations properly. Uh, I, the reason I bring this up is I had a client, uh, I think it was yesterday, who said to me, yeah, we hope to have this EMR system up and running in a month. And <laughs> <laughs> so what, what do you think about that? What's your advice? By the way, they are one of your clients. So
3: <laughs> so it's possible. Um, it, it, it's not impossible, but there are so many variables that you have to take into account. Um, so so let's start with that evaluation process. Of course, the evaluation process now takes a lot longer than it did a year ago uh, because there are certain things that, that we were able to do a year ago that we can't do now, like come on site and and be able to do a demonstration in front of all of your providers at one time or, or make the rounds uh, while we're on site. So we're doing all of that virtually now. Mm-hmm. Uh, site visits. I think it's extremely important that you at the very least talk to someone who's using the system now uh, or if you have the opportunity to go on site and watch them work within the system. Um, it's one thing to have me do a demo for you because uh, I, I live and breathe in this system and and I had a hand in designing a lot of the, the the system that you see. It's one thing for me to be able to show it to you. It's one thing for you to see a, an end user uh, having the experience in the system. So so those things have become more complicated in this evaluations phase. Um, uh, The typical evaluation that we're seeing takes about four weeks. Uh, It's a little bit longer now because now we're doing virtual site visits and and things like that. But around that four-week mark is, is, is pretty good to make your decision. Once you've made your decision, that that next phase of contracting uh, depends on on how much you want to change within that contract. Uh, that can be as short as we present you with a standard contract, you sign it that day, and it's a one day process. But if there is redlining and if we get lawyers involved, of course they're looking for those billable hours. So so we see the the complications uh, uh, explode from from getting the lawyers involved, and then our lawyers have to get involved, and it, it can be weeks or months months to get through that contracting phase. But once we have a binding contract, uh, what we're seeing right now is somewhere between 8 and 12 weeks from the point in which that is a binding contract until you're able to go live. And of course, the variables that, that uh, come into play during that, uh, that 8 to 12 weeks is how much time does your staff have to dedicate to mm-hmm. the, the building of the system and the, the training on that system? And, uh, and the other variables that, that come into play is how many physicians are you servicing at the surgery center? How many physicians visit the surgery center on a regular basis? Because some of the biggest parts of that build are uh, the, the preference cards. The order sets, the discharge instructions, and things of that nature. So those are very physician specific. Um, those that want to shorten that time, uh, if you have dedicated individuals at the surgery center that can give time to the build and training process, that will move that will move your project along quicker. If you already have uh, those order sets those discharge instructions those uh, those preference cards in a, a printable format and an Excel format a word format um, make sure that the EHR you're choosing has copy and paste capabilities so that those things you don't have to spend all your time typing all of that information out so if you can, um, take care of some of those variables. By getting that information ahead of time, you can shorten that timeline. Uh, I know many vendors, our, ourselves included, use the, the the super user methodology where we want to uh, provide additional training to a few individuals at the surgery center so that they have the opportunity to, or the security rights to go in and change things. Uh, they're the person people go for that first line of support they're the person that that has the ability to orient someone when uh, when you have new employees so that super user should receive somewhere between eight and 10 hours of, of personalized instructions so that they have an idea on, on the inner workings of the system so they can be the one that, that jumps into the forms manager and adds that COVID question so it starts showing up the very next day mm-hmm. that you're starting to look at charts uh, that, that can change those physician orders and, and op notes and and uh, uh, be able to handhold uh, some of your physicians that are going to be at ed- Adverse to to the the EMR, the end user training um, has gotten a lot better. <clears throat> In the older systems, our end user training was six to eight hours. So you were dedicating an entire day to end user training. Uh, luckily, we've been to en- been able to engineer a lot of that, uh, that uh, training out so that our end user training right now is averaging about two hours. So we have two hours for end user training for nursing staff, anesthesia, our uh, physician training, we've been able to reduce that down to about 30 minutes. So having a system that that's able to engineer out a lot of the variables or construct the uh, architecture in a way that it flows very easily um, can really reduce the amount of training that's required for your staff.
1: I think one of the points I'm trying to get to also is that there is no compelling reason to rush this, especially at the expense of quality of doing it right. Uh, a poorly mm-hmm. implemented EMR system is worse than no EMR system at all, and uh, it's important that you make the time to do it right. As you said, I mean, in training, we all know how important training is to every aspect of ASCs. But mm-hmm. uh, you're you're setting yourself up for failure if you if you artificially put a timeline that is just unrealistic, and making sure uh, that you have uh, a proper amount of time for uh, uh, for that training. I also want to go back to one of your points. Or earlier, I'll I'll go so far as to say, do not buy an EMR system without going and visiting an actual end user with it and having some mm-hmm. time. And uh, the the good systems out there, of course, will uh, gratefully uh, g- uh, give you uh, uh, end users that you can visit, hopefully near near them. Uh, but there's mm-hmm. uh, if you if you don't uh, actually talk to somebody that uses it on a daily basis that you can actually see it in action, uh, you're you're setting yourself up again for failure on that. I think a lot of the a lot of the systems that I've uh, seen implemented recently have, have exactly had that problem. That, you know, they've they've gone through the sales pitch. They've listened to the vendor talk about the value of the system. Uh, sometimes the doctors are the ones that are making that decision because they they had the sales pitch over the phone or whatever uh, without actually going into the details of it. And I think that that's a, a bit of a challenge um, in in making that decision. I I'll be honest. I really think that if you're going to implement a system from the beginning to the end, the minimum amount of time is probably six months to to uh uh you know, between when you decide that you're gonna go with EMR and then actually uh you know, going live with it. And my experience uh, of implementing computer systems will will default back to that. Make sure that you have an overlapping time frame. Where, in the case of an EMR, you're go, you're you're doing paper records for a short period of time. At the same time, you're doing an EMR, and then have somebody compare those records to make sure that you're capturing all that same information. It's it's difficult, of course, especially with an EMR, having to duplicate you know that that effort. But um, you, you you do need to think about that when you're uh, implementing.
3: Yeah, We, we always uh, try to, to make that very clear when we're talking to people. Is if any salesman comes in front of you and says this is an easy process, they're lying to you. <laughs> That's right. Uh, because it's not easy. It, it, it's not easy. It is challenging. But uh, uh, hopefully, uh, especially in the recent past, we were able to show you how much effort you put in now has exponential results later. Right. So if you do the right things with training and with setup and and when you're going through that implementation phase you're building things the right way, the most expensive uh, EMR you're ever going to to have is the one that you install second. Yeah. So so doing it right the first time, investing the time and energy in it now is going to have exponential re- results in the future. So you don't have to redo all of that work. So uh, listen to your trainers and, and yeah. listen to your implementation specialists and, and make sure that you're investing now.
1: Yeah. And to that point, we have a client, unfortunately, who did not take that advice from either you <laughs> or the vendor, and they are on their third EMR system in 18 months. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, And by the way, they've gone back to one of the systems that they used in the beginning. And Which wasn't a great system anyway. <laughs> and by the way, none of these systems, I guess I need a point, none of these systems are ASC-specific. So they still keep making the same mistake over and over again. Uh, part of the problem is that they are, just like we talked about, they are a, a clinic slash uh, a surgery center also, which you know provides a lot of challenges. I, I, I certainly understand how you want to reduce the number of systems that you have out there, but you shouldn't be doing that at the expense of having a system that's designed specifically for ASCs.
3: Yeah, and that's always been the challenge for those systems, for those, those centers that, you know, they're open one day a week or two days a week. And then, you know, uh, we ride in there on, on our white horse and and say, Hey, we've got the perfect system for you, but we can't price it. in a way that's advantageous to a small center, so right. uh, you know that's 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 been on our plate for quite a while, and and we're making some changes to to make it more efficient for them. Um, it was never easy to walk into those centers and say, oh, oh, by the way, you have to buy a twenty five thousand dollar server, yeah, uh, in order to make this run, you know, for one day a week. So that's part of what's driven the innovation of the the EMRs and management systems the last few years is is trying to get down to that uh, that market. So let's
1: uh, finish this interview with uh, let's see if we can do this uh like a quick bullet point uh, list of uh, uh what should a center be looking at what are the most important things they should be looking at when they're looking at an EMR system uh bullet point mm-hmm. wise otherwise we would have another 2 hour interview here. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh I I'm going to say the the most important bullet point that that I can uh, advice that I can give anybody is workflow. Make sure that this workflow is efficient. Make sure it's efficient not only for the the workflow in the business office, but the workflow for the clinical staff, for anesthesia, and, and for the physicians. Make sure that they have the appropriate tools in the system to to accommodate a, a an ASC workflow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, Problem number one, or bullet point number one, uh, when evaluating, uh, make sure that that when you're evaluating these systems that they're going to be around for the long haul. Oh, well uh, a, a, yeah. As you know as well as I do, uh, we've seen a lot of systems come and go in the in the marketplace, uh, and and making sure that this system's going to be around for a while is is going to be important. And third big bullet point is security. Uh, if if your EMR vendor can't provide you with security documentation or a SOC two certification that that EMR vendor has gone through SOC two certification. You need to get them out of your door right now because they're not able to provide you the the security that's required. Uh, we've all seen the Becker's headlines. Uh, yeah. You know this this place was uh, had ransomware or this place had an interruption in service. If you look at all of those headlines and you search to see where those are. Those are all on-prem solutions or server on-site solutions. So uh, we know where the vulnerabilities are on those on-site systems and making sure that that, that security is, is high uh, on their priority list as well. So those are probably the, the three biggest bullet points I can give you uh, as far as what they need to be looking for and what needs to be considered when they're, they're looking at, at EMR in the surgery center.
1: It's been great, Darren. It's nice to, every once in a while, we, uh, we try to talk about EMRs. I know it's not everybody's favorite topic, but I think it's going to become even more important uh, in the future. I think we are, as an industry, running out of time uh, to, to move in the direction that really all the other uh, organizations have run. So I think this is very timely advice. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
0: You're never alone in the ASC industry. Many organizations are eager to provide an opportunity to keep up on all aspects of running an ASC, and in this section, we highlight upcoming events.
1: So, as we mentioned before, we're not getting a lot of information on these things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, fortunately, I know about a number of them. So, please, if you'd like to have your event uh, included in our podcast, please send the event information to info at ascpodcast.com. And we would uh, uh, graciously uh, love to, to include mm-hmm. you in this list mm-hmm. here. It used to be that this list would take us, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: quite a while yeah. to, to go through. but
0: uh, Yeah, whether it's virtual or live. We'll that's let right, us know.
1: any of them. So, the New York State Association of Amatory Surgery Centers will hold four virtual conferences. We're going to be uh, managing Jim out of our studio here in Spencerport. They're going to be on four days in September, Monday, September 14th, Wednesday, September 16th, Monday, September 21st, and Wednesday, September 23rd. And uh, they're going to be in afternoons, uh, just to make it a little bit easier for administrators. Hopefully, all the fires will be put out pretty much by then, or at least be only embers at that point. Um, And uh, for more information, visit uh, NYSAASC.org.
0: California Ambulatory Surgery Association has gone big time into the virtual conferences.
1: So I had an opportunity this last week to talk to Beth Le Boyer, and I know mm-hmm. she's been working uh, very uh, hard in getting all these things done, and uh, she's done a fantastic job of mm-hmm. uh, putting together a whole series of upcoming virtual conferences, mm-hmm. a number of them that have been done already. For example, today, August 5th, uh, she did a session on medication management in 2020, okay. which I'm sure was great.
0: But well, their live conferences are always so good. I they know. are. Oh, this I know. I
1: really fun. miss, uh, going. well, first of all, mm-hmm. I miss going to California anyway, but to, uh, to be able to see these. Uh, virtually, I think, will be fine. And I'm Mm -hmm. going to be doing an exciting ASC financial boot camp on Friday, October 9th uh, for her. So definitely go to casurgery.org for more information. That's casurgery.org for a list of all the upcoming virtual conferences put on by CASA. uh, And certainly to sign up for my ASC financial boot camp, which I'm sure Mm -hmm. will be a big success. And the great thing, you mentioned it earlier, too, is that you don't have to be from California Mm -hmm. uh, or the California Association to, uh, to sign on to it I don't I don't have the pricing information on this but uh, definitely go up there and uh, and uh, check it out
0: and the Ohio State Association conference will be September 30th through October 1st, 2020 at the Hilton Columbus Polaris in Columbus, Ohio.
1: So uh, Alex and I are already signed up for that. Uh, It does sound like it's going on. It does sound like it's going to be live. So uh, I haven't heard any uh, changes to that at this point. As I said, I just saw that my -hmm. hotel reservation came through. So I'm sure that will be interesting. That is the only live conference that I'm aware of at this point. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and, and certainly do us the honor of hitting that subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by that incredible team over at Ambitro Healthcare Strategies. Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels.
0: This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank this week's sponsor, Surgical Information Systems. SIS provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. For more information, visit sisfirst.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring with the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at